This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hello, and welcome to our third Thursday's webinar. I'm Maggie Cool, Vice President of Research Engagement at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And it's been a while since I've been on one of these webinars, and it feels a bit like coming home. We used to do a lot of these. So thanks for, so much for tuning in today. And uh, I'm excited to be here in addition to just the webinar at all, but also on this topic, which is a major research breakthrough, a new biomarker for Parkinson's disease. If you're joining us, you'd likely read a news article or a blog post or seen our social posts around this and we're happy to be able to answer some questions that you may have and provide more clarity on what we think are truly momentous findings. So let's introduce our panel. Today with us we have Sohini Chowdhury who is our Chief Program Officer at the Michael J. Fox Foundation and has started and led our PPMI study which contributed to these findings since its early days. With her since then has been Ken Merrick, our PPMI principal investigator. He is also president and senior scientist at the Institute for Neurodegenerative Disorders in New Haven, Connecticut. And Dr. Rachel Dolan, a movement disorder specialist and our senior vice president for medical communications. Hello all. I would say nice to chat with you, but we chat many times um, a day. So nice to spend this hour with you. So our research breakthrough is a biomarker. Let's start with what is a biomarker? So Heaney, I'll hand it over to you to orient us to this slide and this term. Thank you, Maggie. And I just want to echo, Maggie, it's a pleasure to be here with you all today and to um, share with you uh, information about this breakthrough that um, we're all excited about. So let's kick it off. And, um, you know, the title about this is a breakthrough and a new biomarker for Parkinson's research. So what is a biomarker? Um, at its simplest level, a biomarker is an objective way to measure or to track biological processes in our body. And those biological processes can provide information, valuable information about um, disease risk, about um, a disease starting, or about, if you have a disease, the progression of that disease. Um, an example that we usually like to provide to, that kind of highlights this is cholesterol. Obviously, there's no way for us to kind of look at our heart day in and day out and get a sense of how healthy it is or if it's in initial stages of disease, etc. But cholesterol is a wonderful way to be able to give us that information without having to look at the heart itself. And so, in this example, cholesterol is a way to not just measure how healthy your heart is, but also to get a sense of if there's an intervention, whether that intervention is helping your heart and addressing the disease itself. And so when we think about biomarkers, there's lots of different use cases for biomarkers, and not all biomarkers can do everything, but you usually have different biomarkers, or some biomarkers can kind of address multiple things, but these biomarkers usually can help when we're thinking about this Parkinson's specifically, they can help us diagnose the disease, they can help us understand how the disease is progressing in an individual, 
They can be very, very useful in clinical trials, and they allow us to really get a sense in trials about whether a therapy is having the desired effect. So it really helps us understand um, the impact of a therapy in a testing paradigm. And so the biomarker that we're really going to talk about today is really looking right now as a, as a research biomarker, a biomarker that can help us advance research for Parkinson's disease. And so I'm going to pass it on now to, to Rachel to tell you a little bit more about the biology around which this biomarker is centered. We didn't say the name of the biomarker. So it's the alpha-synuclein seeding amplification assay, which is a very long term, but maybe we'll just start, as you said, Sohini, um, with the biology, with the first um, term there and with alpha-synuclein. So as... Sohini said and Maggie said, this new test is centered around a protein called alpha-synuclein. And if you've been around Parkinson's for any, um, any amount of time, you've probably heard the word alpha-synuclein. Now, this is a protein that we all have, Parkinson's or not. It's a normal protein. It's concentrated throughout our cells in our bodies, but mainly in the brain cells. And we're not 100% sure exactly what it does, but it's likely responsible for communication between the brain cells. In people with Parkinson's, this protein folds abnormally and clumps up. And again, to kind of set context around this, we've all been hearing a lot around Alzheimer's. Many people are familiar with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's has a protein as well that clumps abnormally, and the medications go after that protein. So when we're talking about Parkinson's, in the brains of most people with Parkinson's, this protein, alpha-synuclein, clumps abnormally into structures called Lewy bodies. And it affects this, we think it affects the cell's function or the ability of the cell to work normally. And that's what we call the sort of pathological hallmark of Parkinson's because we see this at autopsy in the brains of most people who live with Parkinson's. Thanks, Rach. So part of um, the activity of alpha-synuclein is, as you said, sort of the misfolding. And this pathological activity can impact the um, other sort of neighbor proteins, right? And so that is what this test is leveraging. And Ken, perhaps you could explain this phenomenon and what the seeding amplification assay uses to try and measure that alpha-synuclein activity. Sure, so I, I, you heard a moment ago from Rachel that alpha-synuclein is a normal protein, one of the important proteins in our body that has many functions which are important for our health. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for reasons we don't fully understand, in some people over time, as you heard, the, the, the protein starts to function abnormally and what's called misfolds. It folds on itself and it clumps or aggregates. And, and when you can see those squiggly ag aggregates in the middle, you can imagine if they're supposed to be nice, smooth, little little wavy lines, and now there are all these big clumps sitting in the nerve cell, they can cause problems in the nerve cell when the nerve cell doesn't function properly. Uh, and that's what happens in Parkinson's disease or you know, with another protein called amyloid and Alzheimer's disease. And what we've also learned, though, is that, which is, you know, sort of a second stage of this problem, is this doesn't only happen within a single nerve cell, but the nerve cells talk to each other uh, so that the abnormal 
synuclein in one nerve cell can be uh, spread and spread to a, to a neighbor. Uh, and really that's the way that this travels around the, uh, the, the brain. So it's, it's both the, the fact that this occurs at all, but also the fact that it can spread from one uh, cell to another uh, that uh, can result in the development and the progression uh, of Parkinson's disease. Uh, can I, let me have maybe the next slide, and we can talk about how this very problem can turn into a uh, you know a positive uh, if as we as we now have developed this biomarker, which is called the alpha synuclein seeding amplification assay. We're going to call it SAA for short, uh, and really this takes advantage of the fact that uh, individuals can contribute spinal fluid. Uh, and if you have Parkinson's disease, there is sufficient synuclein in that spinal fluid sample that when you uh, mix it up with uh, a, a, what's called a synuclein seed, which is just a artificially made synuclein pellet, uh, that it will aggregate. Just as I mentioned in the uh, in, in the brain, where it'll travel, it'll that one uh, the bits of synuclein in, your, in, the, in the spinal fluid will cause the uh, uh, sample to clump together and aggregate. And it's possible uh, to detect that aggregation because you can, uh, you, you, you can, you can uh, put another chem chemical on this, in this mix that uh, lights up uh, under, flu under fluorescence. So now we can say, okay, we can take a simple sample of spinal fluid we can mix it with this seed, we can shake it up, and we can detect the difference between those people who have Parkinson's disease and those people who do not. And that's sort of the basis of this very simple assay. Now, of course, as we'll talk about in a moment, we'd love to be able to do this in something other than spinal fluid. And I think that will happen over time. But today, uh, the results are require a spinal fluid uh, sample uh, to uh, uh, to perform this test. And so you see here on the screen that if the protein, the seed clumps, then Parkinson's disease is present, that this alpha-synuclein pathology is present. But Parkinson's is not the only disease that has that alpha-synuclein pathology. So would this test also work for similar disorders such as multiple system atrophy? So it turns out that the kind of synuclein uh, in different diseases differs. Uh, while they all clump, they don't clump exactly in the same way. Uh, and that has an implication for how this test works. So uh, it, it, it is possible uh, to distinguish in between Parkinson's disease uh, patients and multiple system atrophy patients with this test. But multiple system atrophy patients still look a lot like normal people. So it's not perfect for that, for that group, uh, but, the, uh, uh, but the Parkinson's subjects uh, you know, are, are, are easily distinguishable from the other groups. And so Heaney, how we reached this point with this test of having the understanding and availability of this is, is actually a great story that um, I never tire of hearing because it's a little bit of you know, detective work and ingenuity and passion from some foundation scientists. So if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us. 
Absolutely. I would be happy to because you're right. It's a really it's an inspiring story. And it actually really shows what we can accomplish when we really um, sort of focus on the opportunities and the possibilities. And so um, this assay was first developed or this test was actually first developed for prion disease, not for Parkinson's. And there was a publication about this test, um, the early development of this test in in a scientific publication. And one of our researchers who focuses on biomarkers, she read about it and she thought to herself, wow, this is, you know, this is interesting because this has applicability for Parkinson's. And so she took that and she ran with it and she reached out to the investigator and she said, listen, I I know you're not looking at Parkinson's, but I think you should. And we want to provide funding for you to figure out how this could be something that could be useful for for Parkinson's disease and specifically for the alpha-synuclein that we know exists within Parkinson's disease. And so our, our research team continued to work with this investigator and his lab and um, helped support the ongoing development and then the improvements to this assay. And at a certain point in time, we were like, wow, this is now, this is a pretty good test because it had been tested in small populations. And we were seeing some really interesting sort of data coming out that was saying to what uh, Dr. Merrick just shared, this assay is able to tell us, um, you know, with pretty high confidence, um, who has Parkinson's. It can differentiate individuals who have Parkinson's disease from those who don't. And so we said to ourselves, well, but these studies are small. They're about 20 individuals or less. If we really want to understand, is this a legitimate biomarker for Parkinson's disease, we need to ramp up that data. And Happily, um, the foundation has at its disposal the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative study, which can, um, which Dr. Merrick leads, and um, many of you are familiar with it. And Maggie, if I could actually ask you to to um, move to the advanced uh, next slide, thank you. Um, many of you are familiar with the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, or PPMI, as we like to call it in shorthand. And this is a study that the foundation established um, over a decade ago to um, collect information from individuals with Parkinson's disease, um, from individuals who do not have Parkinson's disease, and from individuals who are at risk for developing Parkinson's disease. And all of these individuals who are enrolled in PPMI have a lot of information collected on them, clinical data, they have imaging scans, and they are incredibly giving in that they provide a lot of biosamples that can be used exactly for the for the purposes that we're talking about today. And so when we really felt that this assay had gotten to a stage of development where it was exciting, but we needed to now bust it out, so to speak, we had the assay integrated in PPMI. And actually that integration is ongoing. Um, we're still uh, getting, uh, we're still having it um, sort of um, tested on samples. And so it actually, the numbers that we have are, are actually higher than the ones on this slide, but I think we're now at over 1,500 um, um, samples that have been tested in PPMI. But the fact remains the same is that we were able to kind of get access very, very quickly to um, samples generously provided by PPMI enrolled participants. And these participants, again, were um, were were unique in that they included individuals that we knew had a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, that we knew were 
um, control participants did not have Parkinson's disease. And interestingly enough, were individuals who, who did not do not have Parkinson's disease in that they were diagnosed, but who are um, at risk for Parkinson's disease. And so we were able to run that assay and generate the results. And given that large population, we were able to then say when the results came out that, wow, there, that there there that we saw in those smaller studies truly exists. Yeah, I, I just want to quote. So as I referenced um, at the top of our hour, this finding has been getting a lot of attention. And I, I want to quote a couple um, articles. And one had a, a physician who's less uh, involved with the study called PPMI, you know, head and shoulders, the best resource we have in the Parkinson's disease research community. And another opinion piece said that you know, PPMI launched in 2010, and all these people, these numbers on the screen have joined since then. And an opinion piece in Bloomberg you know, quoted that sometimes answering big questions like PPMI is trying to do simply requires that kind of leap of faith of, of joining something or investing in something that you know, we hope is going to have a big impact. I think the findings that we're talking about today have realized that impact. And so we really want to thank the participants, the donors, people who have signed on and took that leap of faith with us for the last 13 plus years. And now we're here sharing that we have made this discovery. So um, PPMI is a great resource. The people in it are, are true partners. And, and with that, Ken, perhaps we can go on and talk about how we know that this is a major breakthrough. What did the data show us um, among those PPMI participants? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I think let me just add, though, as what you said, as the you know, it's always amazing to me the commitment of the participants in PPMI. Uh, this is a this is a, a not an easy thing to do and to stick with for all these years. And I I think it's it's entirely up to your persistence that we have these results today. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, so as Sohini mentioned, uh, you know what what's uh, important about this biomarker test is a couple of things. One is that it's accurate, it's highly accurate. Uh, in, in, in this slide, you see that uh, about 93% of individuals uh, had, uh, who had a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease had, a, had an abnormal SAA test. So uh, just to put that in perspective, when we look to um, tests of this sort, you know, if you're above 90%, that's really very good. And, very, and, it, and it becomes likely as time goes on, becomes a usable test. Right now, a research test, but in the future, hopefully a, 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 clinical, a clinical test. Uh, I have the next slide, please. Uh, so I, I think these, these next two slides, I wanted to just show, you know, go, go back to the beginning when Sohini um, uh, described, you know, or defined a biomarker. And, and uh, and I guess the question is, why do we need biomarkers? What's so important about them? Uh, and, you know, these next two slides sort of illustrate that for this biomarker. Uh, the first is in individuals with Parkinson's disease. So in individuals with Parkinson's disease, we can, this is a slide where we've tried to combine different measurements that we do in PPMI. Uh, th uh, uh, this is a measurement on the x-axis of smell function on the y-axis of brain imaging function, and the blue dots represent individuals who are SA positive, and the open blue dots uh, uh, are um, SA negative. And what you're seeing, if you look at the very top, is that most of those blue dots are centered in the lower left quadrant. So those are individuals 
who are uh, have abnormal uh, smell function, have abnormal dopamine imaging function, and are SA positive. But you also see there are some people who have open dots, who don't who who, who looked to us as if they had Parkinson's disease, but they seem to not be SA positive. So I think this is really instructive because those individuals probably have a different biology. They would require potentially different therapies. Uh, and we need to, now we can detect who these individuals may be. Uh, and we can, I'm oh, sorry if you go back to the slide, next slide. And we, can, and we can ultimately treat them effectively. This is even more notable for individuals who have a genetic mutation with Parkinson's disease, like a LARC2 group. You see there, about a third of them are SAA negative. They have a different biology, and therefore, and it's only using these tools that we can understand that. So the clinical information is not adequate, doesn't tell us the difference, but these biologies tell us the difference. So this biomarker is crucial for that purpose. Now, the, the perhaps even more exciting is the idea that we can now use these biomarkers to identify individuals who have this synuclein problem even before symptoms arise. So this legitimately offers us the possibility that we can now intervene with medications that would prevent the onset of Parkinson's disease. This is not something we can do today, but it is something we're planning to start to, to test in the next two years. And you can see that for individuals who have reduced sense of smell, the majority of those people are already synuclein positive. Similarly, those who have uh, what's called REM behavior disorder. On the other hand, those individuals who have a genetic uh, a mutation, those who are unaffected family members or people who are known to have a genetic mutation, a, only a small portion of them are synuclein positive. Uh, but, you know, but maybe those are people uh, are ones we want to follow over time to see whether they ultimately develop symptoms. Because again, this period gives us an opportunity to develop treatments that could prevent the onset uh, of, of disease. Uh, the next one then. So Heaney's going to focus some attention on. Before we go into that, actually, I wanted to ask Rachel, because in, in her blog post, she talked to Un King, who is a PPMI investigator who was involved in this analysis. And he used a really great analogy to talk about how we're seeing varied results among people who have been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So Rich, maybe you could share that. Well, this just really starts to give us a deeper window into what is exactly happening in Parkinson's, the biology of Parkinson's. So again, as everybody who lives with Parkinson's knows, the disease is very different from person to person. What symptoms there are, how those symptoms change over time, et cetera. But we've lumped everybody into the same basket. This now starts to give us a way to separate what's happening in different people and eventually to correlate those with different symptoms, different progressions, and, and so forth. But Un's analogy was a, a good one, I think, in, in the sense that if we say, again, we've lumped everybody in the same basket. So if we call Parkinson's an apple, now we're starting to see maybe most of those apples, most of Parkinson's 
is a red apple. But some of them we're going to see are green. Some maybe are red and green. Maybe a few are yellow. And so we start to understand, again, more, go deeper inside the body, out further than what we can now see on symptoms, on exam, with watching how people change over time. And we're really starting to see exactly what is happening, the biology. You hear us say the biology a lot, but exactly what's happening in the cells inside the body of people with Parkinson's and why it's different from person to person. So Heaney, maybe uh, you can pick this up as Ken was saying, turning it over to you for sort of the so what. You know, we started this talking about the promise of biomarkers. Now we have one. What are we going to do with it? Yeah. So I think that you know, um, when you think about sort of why this is so exciting, um, it really has to come down with enabling more and better and faster clinical trials. And the reason I say that is because when you think about what a clinical trial is designed to do, it's designed to test whether a therapy is having an impact on an individual with a disease, so whether it's having an impact on the disease, in a, and is it safe? And is it having an impact, a desired impact? Is it doing something good? Is the individual with the disease benefiting from it? And so right now, um, you know, Rachel said it beautifully. Right now, up till now, we've always had to look at the symptoms. And I don't need to tell individuals who have Parkinson's or individuals who know people with Parkinson's that the presentation of the disease to symptoms can change day to day. It can be affected by how you sleep, whether you have stress in your life, whatever it may be. So the fact that, you know, up until recently, you know, before we have a biomarker, um, your way of sort of judging whether a therapy is having an, an, an impact is very much relegated to looking at symptoms and the measurement of symptoms is problematic because you're not really getting a sense of whether the actual disease itself, the biology, is being impacted. And so on one hand, this is extremely exciting because you're able to kind of bring it back down to the biology. If you have synuclein if you have the presence of synuclein, you're able to kind of say, is there is there something happening? Is there something in the biology of the individual that is changing with the disease? Um, Rachel also used that analogy of the apples, which is great because it's just, it holds true for trials as well. Um, you want to make sure that when you're testing a therapy, you're testing it in the individuals that are right for that particular therapy. And so we've known for a long time that there's probably subsets of disease. People are experiencing a different journey with the disease. But again, it was sort of, um, it was sort of um, made complicated by the fact that we always looked at the symptoms. But now, you know, we can sort of say, well, maybe if you're having a synuclein targeted therapy, it's incredibly important that everyone who is enrolled in that trial actually be SAA positive. Because we saw through the slides that Dr. Merrick shared that there are individuals, you know, in our Parkinson's group that were not SAA positive. There are individuals who have genetic mutations who are not. So we would want to make sure that we are getting the right people in the trial to really understand whether the therapy is having the desired impact. And then it also allows us to, um, I think this is very interesting, and this is a little bit, you know, forward thinking, but it allows us to not just think about treatments here and today, 
but also to think about a future of preventing the disease. And particularly the data that Dr. Merrick showed about um, the results in individuals who have risk factors for Parkinson's. If you are able to identify individuals at risk with Parkinson's because they have that, that biological anchor we know exists in Parkinson's, we're able to detect alpha-synuclein, even if there are no, um, the disease is not manifesting, there are no clinical symptoms, you could theoretically, and you know, this is actually, you know, turning into reality slowly, but you could eventually run prevention studies and see whether you can um, prevent the manifestation of the disease ever happening. So there's a lot of reasons why there's, it's so exciting, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to, um, with a biomarker, the whole landscape of thinking about how we choose the right people for the trial, how we determine what to measure to understand whether a drug is having an impact, and how we decide when to intervene, all of that changes and becomes more rigorous because it's grounded in biology. And we can measure that biology. We can detect that biology. And that's really exciting. I do want to just add one last comment. We talk about prevention here, but I think, you know, I want to I want to say that this isn't just about prevention. When you have a biomarker, it allows us to be able to run more trials focusing on different um, sort of approaches to the disease and to have a better sense of confidence about whether we can get a right readout. That benefits the entire Parkinson's community. Um, it benefits people who have Parkinson's now, because even if you may not be in the trial population, if you have that biological anchor, you can profit from that potential therapy. And I think that's the big message here is that um, this can really benefit everybody with Parkinson's disease because it allows us to run more trials because they're cheaper, they can happen faster, and we can have more confidence in the accuracy of the results and how those results in that small trial population can be then leveraged and applied to the broader Parkinson patient community. Thank you for, for making that note. I was going to ask that question. I know it's something we've got today in our Q&A box and have heard over the last week as we've been sharing this what does this mean for people who already have Parkinson's disease? And I think you said it, that there are a lot of therapies and there is a lot of hope on the horizon and this sort of uh, lifts, lifts all boats for all. I want to ask a couple other follow-up questions. You referenced synuclein therapies and we have gotten the question, are there therapies in trials to declump or prevent the aggregation of alpha-synuclein? So Ken, there are, the answer is yes, many. So maybe you could give us a little bit more on that. So yes, I think part of the uh, excitement is that there are there is a very robust pipeline of drugs that are waiting to be tested in Parkinson's disease, uh, and if we, as Sohini points out, uh, what we want to do is test them in the smartest way, in the most efficient way possible, uh, and so this biomarker, so it will 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 really help to enable that, uh, and and will I think benefit both people who are at risk and people who have disease. But there are a number of different strategies to try to prevent the clumping of synuclein, and actually both the clumping and the spread of synuclein. Some of these um, have been uh, uh, tested in, in small trials already and continue to be uh, making their way through the drug development process. The, the, there are synuclein antibodies that uh, uh, are akin to the amyloid antibodies that have recently been uh, approved as a drug for Parkinson's disease. 
uh, for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, another strategy uh, really addresses uh, the uh, different different ways to prevent the clumping uh, to, of synuclein from occurring uh, and maybe pills or other approaches. There may be other genetic approaches that are being used. So there are a lot of different options that are being uh, developed and and when will be uh, will be tested. As I, I, I would say again, that one of the one of the real key needs in order to make these tests uh, move forward effectively is to have relevant biomarkers to give everyone the confidence that these uh, drugs are being tested in the right people, uh, and so that we can make decisions based on these. Uh, on the results of these uh, of these clinical trials, so this biomarker and clinical uh, 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 drug availability for testing go hand in hand, uh, and uh, you know happily, uh, this is a very uh, robust moment for these types of drugs. Yeah, and I, I want to make the point that people have asked about synuclein targeting therapies. There are a lot there, but. The biology of Parkinson's is so complex that even if a drug's target is not directly alpha-synuclein, if it's another pathway or another modifier, there could be real utility to this test for advancing a swath of the therapies that are already or close to trials. So we don't mean to give the impression that this test will only work for the number of therapies that we position as targeting alpha-synuclein directly. This will likely have broader application. Yes, I would agree with you entirely, and it's and this sort of speaks to the to the other issue I think we wanted to raise, which is this is this is this is just the beginning of a story. Now that we can begin to understand who has this synuclein pathology, we can also understand uh, and and identify other biomarkers that are going to sort of modify synuclein, and I think that's where I think many of these other drugs that may be. Uh, targeting uh, the immune system or the other other parts of this, the mitochondrial system in the in in, in cells, they, they they may they are likely also going to be uh, benefited by having uh, this test available to select the subjects who would be enrolled in those studies as well. I would also just add, uh, Maggie, that I think um, what is also exciting is that it allows us now to look deeper in studies like PPMI in individuals who are SAA negative, but are presenting with Parkinson's disease, the features of Parkinson's disease, and to better understand those Bio, that biology or those biologies, if they're multiple, um, so that we can really start to get a handle on, um, on the different biologies inherent in what we call Parkinson's disease now, the symptoms that are part of this Parkinson's, uh, the par- part of the umbrella of Parkinson's disease, and to um, understand um, those journeys and to figure out how to best treat those individuals. So you begin to actually really move forward and make tangible an idea of a personalized medicine approach where your biology um, of, of the disease you have is really informing the way 
your treatment should be oriented. And I think that's extremely exciting because we've seen how a personalized approach in oncology, for example, how effective that can be in really, um, you know, improving the, um, the impact of treatments when they're really targeting the right biology and in the case of oncology of you know the right type of cancer or um, you know uh, biological process you know bio- biology underpinning the tumors that an, inv- an individual will have for example yes yeah, so we are not putting the the green or the yellow apples back on the shelf or in no. the by any means we are equal opportunity apple enthusiasts love a granny Smith okay Rachel so we have gotten the question we've talked a lot about the research impact of this test, very deep research impact, clinical impact. If you have Parkinson's today, if you have a risk factor, a family member with Parkinson's, there is a test available that does the seeding amplification assay. What do you tell people who fall into those camps about that test and if they should pursue? So first I'll say, you know, we've appropriately so been focusing on the research aspect of this because it's a research breakthrough. It's ready, as you've heard from Ken, Sohini, and Maggie, this is ready for research. It's being used in research and it has huge and widespread implications for how we do our trials, how the trials run, and on and on. Clinically, it's a little bit different. I will say right now, it has the potential to really make huge changes in how we, how we diagnose and how we care for people with Parkinson's. But when we think about it as it exists today, so let's take a step back and just remind everyone again, I'm sure most people know and have experienced how Parkinson's is diagnosed today. And that's through an examination by your Parkinson's doctor, a movement disorder specialist, who watches you walk, move your hands like this, right? See how quickly and how big you're making movements. And that's how we make the diagnosis. We look for the motor symptoms, slowness, tremor, stiffness, maybe some walking changes. That's how we are able to and how we've been able to diagnose the disease. And as you heard Sohini mention earlier, how we also track changes in our clinical trials. So you can see how it's the best we have and, and we, we use it as, as ideally as we can, but how this can have some implications for how quickly trials can move and also how confident we can be in the results. So when we think about this clinically, today for somebody who's living with Parkinson's, This is a tool that, or somebody who's concerned about Parkinson's, maybe has early symptoms of Parkinson's. This is a tool that can really help support your doctor's diagnosis. In a sense, it's a complementary piece of information. It doesn't by itself tell us yes or no, you have Parkinson's. It tells us yes or no, your alpha-synuclein protein is abnormal at the time of the test. And again, I don't, I don't know that we said this out loud, but just to, just to, reinforce that point. It's a yes, no test right now. Future of it is we hopefully will be able to measure exact numbers, follow that over time. But right now it's at the time of the test. Do you have the abnormal protein or do you not? So now if we take some of these scenarios, Maggie, that you pointed out, if I'm living with Parkinson's and I've, I've been diagnosed, I trust my doctor, I, I'm, I'm confident in the diagnosis, I'm responding to the medication, I have the classic symptoms of Parkinson's. This test may not have 
significant implications for your care or how things would, would what we'd be able to tell you about your Parkinson's today. So it may, again, for some people, it may offer that extra piece of data, that sort of tangible piece of information to hold on to to support your doctor's diagnosis, but it may or may not be necessary. Somebody who's a little bit earlier on in their journey to diagnosis, maybe there's some symptoms there that are mild and we're not quite exactly sure or we can't 100% say it's Parkinson's, maybe this could help us. Again, in the context of your doctor's examination, your medical history and discussion with, with a Parkinson's doctor. For people who maybe have a risk factor, so Ken mentioned smell loss, acting out your dreams, these in some people are some of the earliest indicators of Parkinson's, meaning that in some people who have these symptoms, they may go on years or even decades later to develop Parkinson's. We've also seen in the study, as Ken pointed out through the data, that a lot of people who have these early signs or these early potential indicators do have a positive SAA, positive alpha-synuclein spinal fluid test. The decision whether to get this test, if you have smell loss, if you act out your dreams, even if you're, you're worried because you have a family history of Parkinson's, really an individual and very personal decision, something that you should talk with a movement disorder specialist about, mainly to get the information in the context about what can this and can't this tell me? What will we do with the information? I didn't say that out loud, but when we think about tests as doctors and or, or even as, as patients undergoing tests, we wanna know what are we gonna do with the information? Is it worth the time and the energy and the potential risks of the test, et cetera? And so when you think about whether or not to pursue this test, again, in conjunction with your movement disorder specialist and after discussion, it's really about what is this information going to do for you? Is it going to help you feel empowered, um, knowing more about yourself, maybe potentially joining a clinical trial? Or does it have the possibility of making you more concerned and worried about what your future may hold? So it really goes down to this is, the, as you said, this test is available. Um, but it comes down to individual, personal, case-by-case -case basis, and it's really important to think about talking to a movement disorder specialist, seeing a Parkinson's doctor before you consider pursuing this test, so you get all of the information going in fully, fully informed and aware of what the test can and can't tell you and what you do with that information. I know we're getting a lot of questions about how you access the test and how much it costs and where you have it. So we'll just say the test is called SYNTAP, S-Y-N-T-A-P. You can talk to your doctor about it. You can look it up more online. There are a lot of nuances of cost and process, et cetera. So you'll have to explore for yourself what that would mean to engage with the test. But the information is available um, through some of our communications around this and through the test's website. And I can say, too, on that, again, talk to your doctor. It does, as we've talked about, it does require a spinal tap or a lumbar puncture, which means that we are, we are taking spinal fluid out. It's a relatively common and benign procedure, but not without risk. Um, so, so the test itself can be, can be um, you know, for some people, fairly invasive. Um, it's not yet covered by insurance. So something, too, to think about um, cost, talk to your doctor, talk to the, the um, company that runs the test, your insurer, so that you know about potential costs before pursuing. So maybe that leads us to our last slide here to what's next. I think we've already discussed some of the 
um, hopes to move this out of spinal fluid. But also, I think right now, as you said, Rachel, the test is positive or negative. And especially for our audience who are living with Parkinson's today, our aims to make it more quantitative or uh, you know, have more data points rather than a binary yes, no could potentially have impacts. So Ken, maybe you could tell us about future hopes for, as you said, this is the start of the story. What's the rest? Yeah, there's a, there are, are a number of um, plans and opportunities to get, gather more information. I think what I think everyone uh, is uh, probably is realizing from our discussion so far is that we need more information. This is really exciting, but we need to learn more uh, about how best to take advantage of this test uh, as we, uh, you know, continue to uh, accelerate uh, the therapeutics for for uh, trials and Parkinson's disease. So one one important way uh, would be to be able to measure the how whether or determine whether that the amount of the synuclein in the test uh, can be measured and whether that correlates with the severity of the of your of the illness. Uh, so uh, this is something that is. Uh, uh, not yet available, but I, or hopeful, there will be way, it will be possible to uh, quantify this outcome uh, in the relatively near future. What is relative? It's hard to know, but probably maybe a couple of years it will take. Uh, in the meantime, the yes/no test is still quite valuable, uh, but uh, this would, of course, be an, an area which is uh, uh, going to make it much more uh, desirable. Uh, as we already discussed it would be uh, um, much easier to take advantage of this if it didn't require spinal fluid. So if it was available in blood or skin biopsies or nasal swabs or saliva, all of those are also being tested. And there's reason to believe that it's very likely that uh, as time goes on, it will be possible to to, uh, uh, take advantage of this test uh, using one of these other uh, uh, body fluids than uh, uh, than spinal fluid. I think there are lots of other questions about this, which is which are really going to be important in both helping us to understand and define the early stage of Parkinson's and how Parkinson's progresses, and that's really the key to this. And in so many ways, this will help us to be able to effectively test therapies for Parkinson's. Uh, but for an example, we would like to know. When do people first start to get synuclein uh, in their brain? Is it in their fifties? Is it in their sixties? Uh, uh, what what can what are the why is it that some people may have synuclein in their brain, and uh, and you know and never have any problems at all, and others will develop Parkinson's disease? So now we can begin to really address these issues more directly, and and this is really going to lead us uh, to uh, opportunities for new therapies. Uh, and speed the therapies that are already uh, 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 being tested today. So uh, I just want to wind down and transition to our Q&A period by saying that these findings were possible because of PPMI. You can join PPMI. Nearly everyone in the United States can join PPMI in some way, shape, or form, as can many people outside of the U.S., I saw in the Q&A list a lot of people who are with us who have been in PPMI for years decade or more. Thank you. Please join them. We are looking for people, especially who have um, been recently diagnosed with Parkinson's in the last two years or with that REM sleep behavior disorder that Ken described. 
Also, anyone who is age 60 or older without Parkinson's for that smell loss category, we're screening for that. So please visit our website. There's a link on your screen. Um, share broadly, share often. All right, let's get to Q&A. So we had a couple um, come through beforehand, and now our team's going to be sort of um, sending me a couple from our current chat. But I wanted to start with something that I think we have covered in our time together, but I also think is worth just asking very pointedly. So we got the question, so Hini, I'll direct this one to you. Will this help us develop a cure for Parkinson's disease? So the short answer is yes, it will. Because this it's the first time that we are able to um, go past the symptoms of the disease and go to the underlying biology of the disease. In and of itself, um, it is a huge advance. But what it allows us now to do is to understand this biological anchor, this test, vis-a-vis -vis other aspects of the disease we know, and to begin to peel the layers of the onion back and really understand um, what it is we're dealing with in the individual who's presenting with the disease. And, you know, um, to Ken's point, going earlier and earlier, people who may, who may not um, have the disease, but may go on to develop the disease. So what this allows us to basically do is start to focus on the disease itself and not the clinical symptoms. And that is a huge change. It also allows us to, um, to start to target, to target our therapies to the right individuals. And that matters a lot because we talked um, both uh, Ken and Rachel mentioned some of the successes that we've seen in Alzheimer's. I don't know how many people are aware that in the 80s and 90s, what we found out retrospectively as we developed biomarkers for Alzheimer's is that up to 30% of individuals in some of those early Alzheimer's trials did not have the biology that is associated with Alzheimer's disease. And that's a pretty high percentage. And what that means is that the results that came out of those trials were probably, you know, um, really significantly affected and impacted. And so it gives you a sense of why biology matters and the ability to measure the biology matters, because it allows us to actually go to the right individuals with the right therapy at the right time point. And that essentially means that we are that much closer to a cure because we're able to now focus on the disease itself and not the clinical so and not solely the clinical manifestations of the disease. Thank you. Okay, next question for Ken. We talked about multiple system atrophy specifically. We got a number of questions around Lewy body dementia and other sort of Parkinsonisms and the ability of this test to either diagnose or differentiate between those. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one of the true advantages of, uh, of, of focusing on biology is that these uh, some of these different syndromes that are defined by their cl clinical features kind of come together. Uh, and so we know uh, and have known for many years, of course, that people with uh, Lewy body dementia also have synuclein in their brain, the same kind of synuclein. And indeed, they are positive on this test. There's no doubt. So now we can begin to think about uh, yet another question. I posed a few questions earlier, which is that why is it that some people who have a positive on this test and have synuclein seem to have predominantly cognitive 
problems uh, early on, and some people have motor problems early on. That's an important question that we can now uh, address directly and really develop again, much more targeted uh, kinds of treatments for each of these types of symptoms moving forward. But I think, so this enables us to kind of refocus our thinking to understand these types of diseases based on their biology. And it turns out that there, that the underlying pathology of between at least Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia or diffuse Lewy body disease is the same. Uh, and that has really important implications as we move forward and think about how we're going to develop therapies for these, uh, for these problems. So a similar um, differentiation question. So again, I, I know we talked about this, but some of these points I think are just so worth repeating. So someone had commented, am I right then that this test does not have utility for people with a LERC2 or GBA mutation in Parkinson's? And I think the answer is going to be no, but I would like you to say in your own words why that might be the case. No, I would say absolutely yes. It has, it has. Uh, yes, it will have. It, yeah, it's it, sort of a double negative. So the, <laughs> I didn't mean to confuse you. So I, you know, I think it, it, it has important implications for individuals who have a, 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 a mutation. Uh, I think uh, certainly for individuals with Parkinson's disease, it's particularly important uh, because we've learned that maybe, uh, particularly with LARC2, that there, there are, there are people who are SA positive, people who are SA negative. We need to understand that so we uh, can figure out the best way in the future to treat both of those individuals uh, and to understand uh, the, the, uh, so the biology that, that contributes to, in both, to those, both of those individuals. For individuals who are at risk, who have simply have a mutation but have no symptoms, I think I go back to what Rachel said, I think that's a, that's a much more difficult decision and a personal decision uh, to, to, as to whether one wants to uh, gather additional information at this time, uh, you know, in, in, to, to add to your knowledge base about uh, your, your own biology and your family's biology. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I think that for today, uh, that, that's, that's really a decision of that sort. But we hope that in the not too distant future, there might be le legitimate uh, therapies that could be uh, initiated uh, during that uh, at-risk period uh, that might make it more, more valuable uh, to have this type of test uh, at that time. Yeah, I'm going to put you um, on the spot, Rachel, and ask what I think is the scientist's least favorite question, but it's usually the one that we get from the patient community, which is when. When do we think this might be more of a widespread test or accepted practice we can talk about in research and in clinical care? Yeah, well, again, I think it's, it's ready for research, and we will start to see it immediately become more widely utilized at, you know, at, at, when people are joining trials. Again, back to what we've talked about um, extensively here, especially for the trials that are testing therapies against alpha-synuclein. Um, but in general, clinically, you know, it's, it's, we want to make sure that we've got the data, that we've got utility for the test, that it's informing our decision making. Um, so as Ken said, we, we've got questions, we need more data. So as we build that more data, you will start to see it um, as more of a general practice. And it also, again, like at, at the same time, we may start to see some 
shifting in how we think about diagnosing Parkinson's. So in tandem, this may help us help move us into that future of how do we diagnose Parkinson's and how do we separate the clinical care. So Heaney was mentioning in the future where we get more to this personalized medicine where we're looking at all this data and saying, you know, this drug maybe is the best one for you because you have the positive test. This one's maybe the best for you because you have a negative test. And so as we move forward to understanding more and developing more targeted therapies, we will get to that more personalized precision type medicine. Um, in our last couple of minutes, Ken, I wanted to perhaps just give you the floor for some last words. As we've said, you know, PPMI launched in 2010. We had this vision of this need and a roadmap to get there. And it seems like we have hit a significant milestone in that effort and in our overall effort to develop new treatments and cures for Parkinson's. So what does it feel like? What are you thinking and feeling over these last few weeks? What do you want to share with the Parkinson's community with us today? Well, thank you for that opportunity. I, th I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. This is really a uh, you know, a, a moment to to stand back and and take take notice and say, you know, we have really, as a as a as a community, accomplished something that's really important. Uh, certainly, PPMI uh, was established more than a dozen years ago uh, with the idea that we might uh, identify uh, tools like this, uh, biomarkers like this, that could really uh, really be paradigm shifts in our ability to define Parkinson's disease and ultimately develop therapies for Parkinson's disease. And it's now we have one. Uh, and that is only because we were absolutely ready, having had you know many on this call, being participants for years, contributing uh, you know spinal fluid for years, uh, being go, going to see their physicians every every you know for years. and, and these, these are, this is a tough task. But I think it's what's required in order to really move forward. And I and I also, of course, I have to single out the Fox Foundation for its vision uh, in initiating PPMI a dozen years ago. Where now we look back and we think, oh, well, of course, that would have been something we would have done. But when we started, that was not the case. Uh, and it was not the case that we said, oh, yeah, we should collect spinal fluid in everybody. And, and honestly, uh all of the physicians who were at the site said, that's never going to happen. And we learned that if we explain this to participants carefully and effectively, of course it would happen because people wanted to move forward and find better biomarkers and, of course, better treatments. So it's a very exciting moment. It is, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm very grateful, especially to the, uh, to the, to the participants of, in PPMI and their continued participation. Uh, you know, your, your job is not over yet. Uh, and, uh, and I think we're just at the start of what is going to be a really a, a very much accelerated process uh, to develop uh, new research and uh, new therapies. So thank you. Thank you, Ken. Yes, the job's not over. We need to capitalize on this momentum. So please join us if you haven't already in PPMI. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you to our panel. And um, yeah for the next breakthrough. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening.
This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.